I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 7th, 2011. Normal program today along with a, uh, a good sermon. Man, I need it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work. Yeah, the Bible actually uh, commands us to test everything. Uh, the Bereans, uh, when they tested the gospel that Paul, the Apostle Paul, preached to them, they tested it against the Word of God. And uh, the book of Acts uh, says that they were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, who just flat out just rejected that gospel without actually really correctly checking what the Scripture said regarding the gospel that uh, Paul preached. Had, they, the, had the Thessalonians taken the time to actually uh, you know, open up the Bible, crack open the Septuagint there, they would have realized, oh, wait a second— uh, that gospel that the Apostle Paul's preaching, that's that's right. This is what the Scriptures prophesied regarding the Messiah. Anyway, so there's a, there's a lot of crazy stuff being said out there. We do the comparative work and uh, and encourage you to even test what we say against the Word of God. It, you know, the idea here is that I'm a sinful human being and capable of error myself. As a result of it, God's Word is true, and we need to dig into God's Word to find what it is that, that what what are the thoughts that the Holy Spirit inspired to be written in His Scriptures, that uh, that we that these are the inspired thoughts. What are these thoughts that we are to be knowing? These the, the the what God the Holy Spirit put there for the transformation and renewal of our mind. Um, you know, it, you know, there's there's just guys out there that are making stuff up and they're winging it. And I think one I'm doing this from memory. I think one of the biblical uh, metaphors uh, for false teachers is they're like wandering stars. Um, you know, the the metaphor kind of works like this. Um, 
when you know back in the day uh before GPS and uh and even really before magnetic compasses and and you know all of the stuff that makes modern navigation possible uh, in order to navigate a ship you know, you had you had to look to the the stars but not just any stars you had to look for the one you had to look for the one star that wasn't moving the one star that was fixed this would be the north star polaris and uh, and and so you couldn't navigate by stars that were wandering uh, you you know because they are not capable of navigating you to where you need to go you need a fixed point uh, that that you can you can hang on to that can you can look to that that'll tell you where you be and uh, and so that's the idea is is that um false teachers are wandering stars they're not fixed they they move as a result of it what they teach you is they're not really they're not really leading you to Christ they're not leading you to heaven they're not leading you um to the truth because they wander they, they, you never know what they're going to believe uh, or say one day to the next i mean you know when in fact you know i you know just kind of talk about this in in the seeker driven terms uh, these seeker driven guys you have no idea what it is that they're going to say next why because they're not dealing with a fixed set of doctrines they're not dealing with the what the faith once delivered to the saints uh they're chasing after whatever is new whatever is relevant whatever is going to grab people's attention feel fill those stadium seats that they have in their in their big uh multiplex uh entertainment centers and as you just don't know what they're going to say next they don't they're they're wandering stars and in reality, they got some big, 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 big problems. And so we, we cover that. And we work from a fixed position. Uh, here, here's the idea. Um, um, if you want to know what I believe, teach, and confess, I, I like to think of myself as a first-century Catholic, small c, uh, otherwise known as a confessional Lutheran. Um, since the faith was once delivered to the saints, you 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 know Christianity didn't didn't just wasn't just hatched yesterday. It didn't just appear magically on the shores of the United States. Um, you know, and in the year that I confessed Jesus publicly or any anything of the sort. No, the historic Christian faith was once for all delivered to the saints. So you're going to find the historic Christian faith through all the centuries. Now there are some centuries in which his, the historic Christian faith is battling major internal heresies. And uh, so you, you see uh, you, you know you, you see the Arian heresy cropping up in the fourth century, fifth century, the Pelagian heresy. Um, and then in the medieval period, you have uh, you know kind of the papal heresy, uh, the, the heresy revolving around the office of the Pope, you know, which by the way, the, that office doesn't exist biblically. As a result of it, medieval Catholicism wanders off into mythology. God graciously, though, grants uh, you know the the Reformation to occur, and there's a repristination, a re you know a a, re, a gathering back, a going back and saying no 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 no, this is what the Church has confessed all along. These other doctrines are not what the what what is taught in Scripture. It's not what the Church has confessed, and so you what you really want to see in your theology is an unbroken chain of this is what uh, what I believe is what the church has taught, and what the church has taught is what the scriptures teach. And scriptures are the norm, okay? That's the, that's the, the sole authority. So where the church teaches di divergent from what the scriptures teach, the church is wrong. 
And uh, and so the church is not infallible. God's word is infallible. And uh, we in the church have to always, you know, maintain a good steady guard, guarding God's word, guarding what it says, guarding that truth, proclaiming it and passing it on to the next generation. And, and so if you if you want to know what I believe, you go and you look for what's called the Book of Concord. And this is the uh, Confessions of Confessional Lutheranism. And it begins with the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. They, these really form the bulk of, uh, of the confessions that I, I believe. Then, uh, then you know, the, the important creed that comes out of, that's a corrective against med, the, the medieval papal heresies that uh, emerged in Roman Catholicism in the medieval period, uh, that's the Augsburg Confession. Okay, and so those are really the those are the primary creeds that I subscribe to, and then of course I I also subscribe to the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the Small and Large Catechisms, uh, the pi, uh, Power and Primacy of the pro, uh, Pope, uh, the Small Called Articles, uh, and you know, and it, it, there's there's more to it. But uh, what I find is is that uh, you're you're going to find in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, even the Small Catechism and other things, that there those are good theological commentaries on the uh, the primary doctrines that are confessed in the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, uh, Athanasian Creed, and the Augsburg Confession. Uh, a lot of the other stuff that you're going to see there is really commentary on the major doctrines that are really divulged in those four documents. So. Yeah, that that so that's what I believe, teach, and confess, and so I'm working from a fixed point, and I am convinced uh, through my historical and theological uh, education and research, uh, and and study that uh, that uh, that that you know that's that really comprises a correct understanding of and summary of what the scriptures have teach uh, teach what the church has taught. And always taught from its beginning, and so you know, I'm looking for a fixed point to navigate from, not one that's continually moving and wandering. Uh, this idea that the liberals have that, that we need to rethink Christianity—that that's just flat-out heresy. No, we don't. We don't need to rethink nothing. The faith has been once for all delivered to the saints, and that's the faith that's to be proclaimed, professed, taught, and passed along until Christ returns. And uh, when people diverge and uh, from that, uh, diverge from sound biblical doctrine and what the scriptures teach. Um, as, and I would say, and you can correctly understand what the scriptures teach as summarized in these important confessions, uh, that we got a big problem, big, big, big problem. And um, it, to the point where, uh, you know, at times, uh, you know, over and again, I point out the fact that there are, there are guys who are major teachers within the, you know, the visible church who are teaching a different gospel. And it needs to be spoken of in those terms because their their gospel won't won't actually save anybody. It's powerless to do that because it's not a true gospel. So if you don't believe that that's really what's at stake, I would recommend taking a look at Galatians chapter one, which talks about the uh, <clears throat> the effects of in the uh, ultimate pronouncement against false gospels. So anyway, uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, if I sound focused, it's because I am. Um, I have been working, really spending a lot of time focusing in on uh, my preparation for uh, my uh, the conference that I'm holding in Elk River, Minnesota on uh, this Friday night, 6.30 p.m. across the street from the Crossing Church at Elk River High School. Uh, the name of the event is Double Cross by the Crossing, and I will be doing comparative work at that event, um, You know, showing you what Eric and Kelly Dykstra, as well as... Um, 
uh, one of their campus pastors has been teaching and and compare that to the uh, biblical text, I will be laying out a clear uh, definition of what a cult is and what the danger signs of a cult are and uh, demonstrate that, that that the Crossing Church actually uh, all by themselves, independently, uh, fit you know that the many of the danger signs they're exhibiting them already, and uh, I will be demonstrating that uh, Eric Dykstra is not a proper handle of God's word, and that the um, that the strange things that he says are strange indeed, and uh, it really what the the hope there is is that the people of Elk River, Minnesota, will recognize that they have got a wolf in their midst and uh, will do what is necessary to protect themselves, their friends, and their family. Uh, from uh, from Eric Eric and Kelly Dykstra and the Crossing Church. So yeah, uh, if you're anywhere near uh, Elk River, Minnesota, this Friday night, would love to you know to uh, have you there. And uh, we're expecting yeah at this point, I, uh, we may have a huge turnout. We'll have to see what happens. Anyway, um, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley that I uh, intend to read here shortly. Uh, it's always good to hear from Pastor Charmley, and uh, whenever he writes an email, it's, it's worth taking note of, and so I'm excited to pass this along. Uh, we've got a, a Melissa Fisher, a Holy Ghost Answering Machine update. Yeah, that, 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 that's what I'm referring to, uh, Melissa Fisher, as the Holy Ghost Answering Machine. I am actually in the—when uh, I have a moment, I'm gonna, I, we've got a, a Marty Python's Flying Circus Church sketch that we're going to be doing uh, around this uh, theme of Melissa Fisher— as the uh, Holy Ghost answering machine. So we've got that. Um, uh, time permitting, I, you know, I may not be able to get to her. Um, time permitting, I do have a, an update from the Ravished ravished Heart. We're going to be looking at the, uh, apparently, how you can break the spirit of barrenness with you. Not, not, you know, not literal barrenness, but apparently uh, spiritual blessing barren, barrenness. That's if we have time. Um, and then after the uh, after the break, we're going to be uh, I'm going to be doing a segment entitled Who Does the Church Exist For? Who does the church exist for? This is critical because uh, one of the things that uh, Perry Noble uh, is on record on at the uh, Elephant in the Room conference is he basically claims that uh, that uh, he that the, the, the his critics are all criticizing him methodologically but not theologically. And I'm going to basically blow that wide open and say that the method, the methodology that we see coming from men like Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, and others uh, is driven by a false theology. And I'm going to get to the bottom of that today. So we're going to be reviewing, actually re-listening to some audio uh, from Stephen Furtick and uh, Perry Noble and, uh, and answer the question, who does the church exist for? And uh, and then also time permitting, I, you know, t- today's kind of in flux, you know, because I, I don't know how long I'm going to take on things. Time permitting, I've got an Albert Muller piece entitled "What Makes Evangelicalism Evangelical," and then for our sermon review today, we're going to be uh, uh, flying across the pond, uh, figuratively, and uh, listening to a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon entitled "Pardon for Sin." Pardon for Sin. Um, it's been a little more than a week since we've listened to a good sermon, and um, I'm dying here doing all this uh, research and, and prep for uh, my outing to uh, Minnesota on Friday. So I need to hear the gospel, and uh, Pastor Charmley is, just does a fantastic job of preaching the gospel, and I would lo- you know, like to pass that along to you. So uh, with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper, and... Uh <laughs> 
That's right. Uh, we got an email here from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, the man, the pastor who, well, is such a fine minister of God's word that he has four names. And the name of his email, uh, the subject heading on it is The Abdication of Dogma. <laughs> now, this is, the, this is a category name that I'm going to have to hang on to and use from time to time. Uh, pastor Charmley, uh, as I, I want to make you make it clear that I will be stealing this phrase from you, and uh, and let it be known that uh, at, at this point, if I don't ever give you credit for it, it, that I'm giving you credit for it now. That this is your phrase, and I, I do intend to let everybody know that uh, when I speak this phrase, the abdication of dogma, that I'll ref- always refer to it as a, you know my friend Pastor Charmley from uh, Great Britain, um, his phrase, the abdication of dogma. Anyway, Pastor Charmley writes. He says, "Dear Chris." Listening to Vince Antonucci, <laughs> you know, I got to admit, it's um, it's tough for me to picture Pastor Charmley listening to a Vince Antonucci sermon just because I have so much respect for him. Anyway, I, I uh, pa- Pastor Charmley, I supremely apologize to for subjecting you to a Vince Antonucci sermon, but I'm very thankful that you did listen to it and uh, you're chiming in. He says, I'm listening to Vince Antonucci, and one thing struck me even more forcefully than it had already – that the true reason for all of this follow, not believing talk, that's right, we're going to be followers of Jesus, not believers. He says all this following, not believing talk is actually what I describe as the abdication of dogma. This is nothing more or less than a form of liberalism, but unlike the old liberalism, where dogma was dismissed because it was thought to be untrue, in the seeker-driven churches, dogma is dismissed because it is thought to be irrelevant. The result, however, is the same, a message that is based upon and directed to this present world, despite the fact that the world is passing away and all that it desires. That majors on morality and that ignores the heavenly hope, not because it is not believed, but because it is not valued. We need to consider the words of the British Baptist preacher Charles Brown, who said, quote, If people are not interested in the gospel, we must not take to preaching something else. If the scholars cannot be interested in the Bible, the teacher must not bring a storybook. I have nothing to preach but salvation by Jesus Christ and his cross, by the work and holiness of the Spirit of God. And if these things go down, I, for one, will go down with them, for they are at the very heart of the truth of God and are capable of producing true life. That was from Trial and Triumph, uh, London Kingsgate Press. Uh, uh, part 51. This is a volume of sermons on First Peter preached at uh, Fermi Park uh, Chapel, London, during Brown's pastor there, which lasted from 1890 to 1925. Now, the liberals honestly held that the dogmas of, the historic, of historic Christianity were untrue and acted on that conviction in their preaching. Antonucci would, I suppose, affirm those dogmas to be true, and yet he preaches as if they were false. He and his ilk are heirs, in some respects, to the old fundamentalists and their evangelical cousins, and yet Antonucci and his ilk betray that heritage and preach as if the dogmas were false, all the while affirming that they are true. This ought not to be. If they are true, proclaim them, and God will work by them. If they are false, Then affirm that you think them false, but do not be double-minded. The same could be said 
for their attitude to the Bible. If the liberal preached a message founded on a work of man, a poem or an essay, he did so because he believed the Bible to be merely the religious insights of ancient men, insights that could be bettered by the men of today. He denied its inerrancy and reduced the inspiration to a literal uh, literary quality. The modern megachurch pra- uh, preacher who takes a film as the basis for his sermon will like as not, affirm the inerrancy of the Bible and will certainly say that it is the very word of God, but his actions deny that. For if we can find religious truth of a preachable quality in Batman, then is it not being treated as in some way inspired as well? Yeah, great point. Great question. Yeah, apparently Batman's inspired. And what is it that suffers in such treatment of preaching? Always the dogma. The modern evangelical church is sadly afraid of dogma, and that fact means that it is fast passing over into the realm of liberalism. Pastor Charmley, great insight. Absolutely agree with you 100%. All right, moving along here. What a weird juxtaposition. Go from Pastor Charlie to Melissa Fisher. Oh, brother. All right, so um, Melissa Fisher, we lovingly refer to as the as the Holy Ghost answering machine. And we, like I said earlier, we are working on a Marty Python's Flying Circus Church sketch. Uh, with that theme in mind, is uh, Melissa Fisher is the uh, well the answering machine for the Holy Ghost. And you know, it, it just makes you wonder. What is this Holy Ghost that she believes in? I mean, what a lame Holy Ghost this Holy Ghost is. I mean, poor guy, he can't even find you. I mean, he has no idea how to get a hold of you. No, no, he, I mean, he apparently doesn't know how to use the Internet or a modern phone book or a GPS system, hasn't figured out how to use email. And so he's reduced, well, to communicating to you through Melissa Fisher, um, who is apparently his favorite Answering machine. So I'm sure the Holy Ghost calls her up and and says to her, uh, "Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Ghost." And um, yeah, I, I can't find this person. So can you pass this message along to them? So, so here we go. Uh, Melissa Fisher, Holy Ghost answering machine. Um, her latest message from the Holy Ghost that she got to pass along to you. Here we go. Hello, everyone. I've got three words for you. Go back now. Now, this probably isn't what you think, but be encouraged because the Lord is speaking to you. The people that you've maybe been witnessing to and really they've been burdened on you because you want them to come into the kingdom, family members, friends, co-workers, whatever. And in the past, when you've gone to them and you've made attempts, they've either were not interested or rejected or whatever. But now is the time to go back now. Oh, that's great news. I mean, I mean, sounds really convoluted and kind of complicated, but boy, I'm I'm glad that the message from the Holy Ghost to Melissa Fisher, the Holy Ghost answering machine, is go back now. Wow, this is profound. Because you have to understand that these same people right now, the Lord is saying they're going through some stuff. And many of the things that they trusted in and had their security in are being snatched out from under from them. And the Lord is saying now is a time when they are ripe Ah. and they are ready. And so I want to encourage you. It was not you that they were rejecting. Remember, the Lord says they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Right. But now 
is the time. So go back so now. So what he's asking for you to do is go before him, get some strategy, and let him show you what to do. For some of you, there's groups of people, and your God's going to have you do like a divide and conquer strategy. Wow. But I guarantee you, it so is going whole, to be... The Holy Ghost has got some strategies for you if uh, this is uh, for you. Amazing. And so be encouraged. All of those ones you've been praying for, God has heard your prayers and he's been working on their hearts. So now is the time. Go back now. Wow. I mean, it's, that is such a service that um, she's doing apparently for the body of Christ. I mean, could I, the poor Holy Spirit. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if uh, if if we didn't have Melissa Fisher? I mean... Right, I mean, we you know, we wouldn't. Yeah, it just. It... We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Right, without without Melissa Fisher, I mean, the Holy Spirit would be up against that kind of a wall. And but thankfully, she's the Holy Ghost's answering machine. And so we like to pass those messages along as a as a way of well, audience enhancement. You know, audience multiplication, so that 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 message gets to a larger segment of the seven billion people on planet Earth. That you know, any one of them could the message could be for them. So there you have it. Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's. Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, <sighs> sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, 
ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Morning. Beware of the pastor who says the church is not for you. That's all I'm going to say right now. We'll develop this thought in a minute. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We truly do depend upon your, you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. I uh, want to thank you all for helping us get through the, oh man, the train wreck lean summer months. Um, I think things might kind of maybe be sort of turning around. We'll find out as the days go on. But man, August is tough. <laughs> I think I should just take the whole month off next year. Anyway, <laughs> man, so thank you for supporting us through the lean summer months. We truly do depend, though, on your regular giving in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, the way you can support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see two friendly yellow buttons there. The one that says join our crew, you're signing up to contribute a monthly contribution. It's automatic after you sign up for it. It's only $6.95 every month, and that's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 
Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, so here's the question that I have that we're going to answer in this segment. Who does the church exist for? Who does the church exist for? Does the church exist for Christians, or does the church exist for unbelievers? Now, this is kind of a trick question, and you'll see why here in a minute. Now, one of the things that we're seeing with the seeker-driven guys, now Perry Noble is out there saying basically this is all methodology and that, that they're free to do whatever they want and uh, that, they, that, that they believe the historic Christian faith, and so therefore this is not a theological issue. I beg to differ with Perry Noble. This is actually a theological problem and a theological error that the seeker-driven guys are engaging in, not a methodological error first. The methodology that they're engaging in comes from a false theology, and I'll explain that to you in a minute. Now, to help us out with this, I'm going to play some audio from uh, from three videos. The first from Stephen Furtick. It's a little bit long. The second from Mark Beeson, and the third from Perry Noble. All kind of making the same point. But it's important, important, important that you hear this because at the heart of this is a deep, deep, deep theological error, and I'll explain it biblically in a, in a minute here. So uh, here is the first of the videos. Uh, this is uh, Stephen Furtick, and uh, this is um, him chewing his uh, congregation out uh, during his uh, Confessions of a Pastor series that he delivered a few years ago before the, you know, before uh, Sofa Express went out of business because of his, uh, his cursing of Sofa Express. So here we go. When you showed up to church this morning, did you show up with a bless me, feed me, make me fatter preacher? I don't intend to do a thing you say, but I'm going to listen to you. And if you dadgum say one thing I don't like, I promise I'll cross my arms and cross my eyes at you the rest of the sermon. Bless me, feed me, pastor. Yeah, did you show up expect to be blessed and fed by your pastor? Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of pot-bellied Christians waiting to shove their spiritual food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You might even take notes, but you take notes so you can argue with them with your roommate after church and how I don't really believe in all that. Yeah, but if we ever start turning in this front row Pharisee crowd, I don't think the teaching's deep enough. I would like a little more hermeneutical explanation on the original languages in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Jesus says, shut up. Help somebody. Bless somebody. Jesus says, shut up. You, if you come to church and you're complaining, okay, now wh- where do these complaints come from? Okay, the answer is, well, the seeker-driven guys don't do expository, in-depth Bible teaching. No, 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 no. They do felt-need, self-help, uh, uh, worldly uh, principles and uh, advice-type sermons by ripping verses out of context. If you don't believe me, listen to the hundreds of sermon reviews I've done here at Fighting for the Faith over the years. And, uh, and, and so these are these, the, literally before these seeker driven guys came along, nobody preached like this, nobody. And so Christians go to church with the expectation they're going to be fed and taught the word of God from their pastor. And then they get into a seeker driven church, which is supposed to be the next big move of the spirit. And, you know, they, they're rocking out to the mystic, mystical songs that have only seven words, but are repeated 11 times. Uh, or they get, or, or worse, they get a, a Motley Crue cover song or maybe an ACDC Hell's Bells cover song. You think I'm making this up? I'm not. Um, and, uh, and then they get a really biblically shallow self-help pep talk, biblical principle type, make my, 
make my uh, life better type sermon. And they're going, man, I just am hungry. And and so they go and complain to the pastor. And this is the beating they get for daring to, well, say, wait a second, something's wrong here. Now they're being told they're Pharisees because they came to church with the expect- expectation that they're going to be fed. Somebody, serve somebody, pray for somebody. Why don't you do something? Why don't you bring a lost friend to church with you next week? Watch Jesus change their life. And then you won't be worried about how loud the music was. You'll just hope that they meet Jesus. That'll be the only thing you can think about. It'll consume you. But some people say, I wish you wouldn't preach all these topical sermons. I wish you'd just preach verse by verse. through." The- yeah, here's, here's, here's the complaint. Uh, I wish you wouldn't preach all these topical sermons, but you'd preach verse by verse. Now, here's his reply. Of Galatians, so that we can understand the full propitiation of the justification by faith. No, here's what you want to do. You want to pull your fat butt up to the table and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And some of y'all even double dip because you go to three churches, you don't serve at any, and you're fat and you need to get on a treadmill and do something for Jesus. I promise the encouraging part is coming. And I'm not normally this mean, but it's, it's my wife's out of town and I've got to take it out on somebody. <clears throat> so Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus is always calling up to the front the people that religion pushes to the back of the bus. Read through the Gospels. Uh, the guy was paralyzed. How does religion push a paralyzed man to the back of the bus? Hmm? Jesus does not give the place of honor to the seminary graduates. He calls out the prostitute, says, follow me. Ask the fishermen who became his disciples. They did not have their rabbinical degrees. The apostle Paul did, and he wrote most of the New Testament. You care to explain that? They were not from the highest pedigree in Jerusalem. They were business owners. Jesus said, you, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Ask David. He was tending sheep. The prophet Samuel comes to anoint the king of Israel. He knew that it was one of Jesse's sons. Nobody even thought about David in that moment. He was just a sheep tender, the youngest one. Surely it can't be David. Oh, yeah, it's David. Because Jesus has the habit of calling out the one that everybody else has overlooked. I want Elevation Church to be a church for the overlooked, for the unloved. Not for us to have as many different varieties of Bible studies. We got Beth Moore and Kay Arthur and Joyce Meyer. No. You know what we got? We got Jesus. We preach him. We preach so that people can come to faith in Christ, and we want them to get in a small group and serve so that other people can meet Christ. If you know Jesus, I am sorry to break it to you. This church is not for you. Yeah, but I just gave my life to Christ last week at Elevation. Last week was the last week that Elevation Church existed for you. You're in the army now. We do one thing. We preach Jesus so people far from God can know Jesus. And then we train them up so that others can know Jesus. It's called kingdom multiplication. It's what Elevation Church is all about. And over 500 people have given their lives to Jesus for the first time in this church in the last five months. That's over 100 per month. If that doesn't get you excited and you need the doctrines of grace as defined by John Calvin to excite you, you in the wrong church. Let me get a phone book. There are 720 churches in Charlotte. I'm sure we can find one where you can stuff your face until you're so obese spiritually that you can't even move. This is a church that wants to get you on the field, playing the game, changing lives, looking for an opportunity to impact. It's what we're all about. 
We're focused like a laser. We're not perfect, but we know what we came to do. Luke 19.10, seek and save that which is lost. It's the mission of Jesus. It's the mission of Elevation Church. Okay, now notice, uh, Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost, but um, Jesus actually gives the church its mission in Matthew chapter 28. You might want to flip over there because I'm going to refer to it in a minute. Now, Notice he said the church, if, if, you know, if you're a Christian, that church does not exist for you. So the question is, who does the church exist for? Does the church exist for non-believers or does the church exist for believers? Again, flip on over to Matthew 28. You're going to need that. So that's Stephen Furtick weighing in on this. Now uh, let's take a look at, um, well, um, uh, Mark Beeson. And uh, his uh, his eye chair uh, uh, analogy. Here we go. Always some Yahoo in the crowd who climbs up in this chair, and they don't get it. They climb up in this chair and they go, "Feed me, wait, pastor, pastor, feed me over here." And they throw a little baby fit, wanting all the attention. They get up in this chair. Oh, no, this is not the high chair. This is the eye chair. It's all about me. It's all about me. They sit here whining. Oh, I want more. Deeper. Deeper worship. I want more Bible study. Feed me. Feed me. Big, wimpy, soft, baby, sissy. These people wear me out. And I talk to pastors all over the country. And they say, what do you do with the needy people? I say, the needy who don't yet know Christ, they don't know they matter to God? No, no. The needy, mature Christians who always want it deeper. Yeah, the needy Christians who always want it deeper. More Bible study, more worship. Apparently, it's wrong to expect to go to church and to be fed God's word and you know, expository verse by verse preaching. You know what? What does God words God's word really say? So again, this is a, this is a major theme in the uh, seeker driven movement, and now we've got the last of them and probably the best. Here's Perry Noble uh, preaching to a bunch of other pastors, and check this one out. Here we go. And so, Perry, what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, "I want to go deeper." You know what I tell people that say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You want to talk deep? Let's go check your tithing record and see how deep you are. Deep? Deep? Most Christians are, uh, John Maxwell said it, most Christians are educated way beyond their level of obedience anyway. What you're really saying is you want me to stand on the stage and confuse the heck out of you so you don't have to apply what I teach on Sundays. I could do that. I want more worship. You got six other days. Yeah, don't, don't come to church expect there to be worship. You got six other days when you can worship. <laughs> yeah, Perry Noble's band has got some important secular cover songs to you know play. Don't come to church expecting to you know, worship. Come on. We don't do that at church. If you were full of Jesus when you walked in here, it wouldn't matter to you how much we sang. Hmm. 
So there you go. Those are the three major bites there. Uh, Stephen Furtick, Mark Beeson, and Perry Noble. So th- now we're, we're going to answer the question biblically. Because I'm convinced, absolutely 100% convinced, that uh, this is not a methodology issue. This is primary, uh, primarily a theology issue. If you believe that the church exists only for non-believers, you are in deep, deep theological error. That is not what the scriptures teach. I'll prove it to you, okay? We'll start with Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You'll notice this as the great commission. This is where the church is commissioned to do its mission. So here's what Jesus says. Are you ready? Go... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hmm. So who are the church? Well, who is the church to be focused on? The answer is both. Both. Let me say that again. Both unbelievers and believers. See, in order to make disciples of all nations, you have to be focused outwardly. You must be focused on those who are not Christians. But in order to teach all that Christ has commanded, you also have to be focused inwardly. Let me give you let me give you something you can hang on to here. Those of you who are parents, Um, If you're like me, you have a mixture of both boys and girls. I've got one boy, two girls. That's the way God decided to do the math in our family. Now, if you now, if from time to time, I, I you got families out there where it's all of one thing, all girls or all guys, and those are those are some interesting environments to be in. But the the point of the matter is this: is that if you're like most parents, you know that falls into the median of parenting, and you have more than one child, chances are that you've got a mixture of boys and girls. Okay, now. Um, I would say, based upon that fact, that you would be in egregious sin and error if you came to me and said, you know, Chris, listen, in my house, we've got two girls and we've got two boys, but I've had a vision from God, and that is, and here's my vision, and that is this, that I am to parent only boys. I'd say to you, you're out of your mind. God the Holy Spirit would never say to you that you somehow have a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free pass and you don't have to parent girls either. No, you, if you've got boys and girls, you have to parent them both, which means you have to parent them differently. They each have different needs, and there's different outcomes as far as what you're shooting for when they grow up. You don't get to say, no, 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 God the Holy Spirit gave me a vision, and I'm only going to, I'm only going to parent to boys. You can't do that. If God the Holy Spirit has made it, has given you boys and girls, you get to parent both. There's only one way, only one way on planet Earth where your parenting skills get to only be focused on either boys or girls, and that's only if God only gives you boys or girls. You get what I'm saying here? So these seeker-driven guys, by saying that well, they've got a vision from God, okay, each and every one of these. Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, Mark Beeson, all have a vision from God on how to do church. And that vision 
includes this understanding that their church exists only for non-believers. If you're a Christian, that church does not exist for you. Sorry. You don't get to... Now, God the Holy Spirit would never do that. Every Christian congregation that is part of the universal body of Christ, known as the church universal, must have a twin focus. Focus on evangelizing and reaching the lost and proclaiming the repentance and the forgiveness of sins to lost and condemned pagan sinners so that they be brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and trust in Christ, and a focus on building up the body of Christ by teaching, preaching, and proclaiming the scriptures, the full counsel of the word of God, or as Jesus says, all that I have commanded you. Let me give you some other passages that make this clear. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to start at verse 11. If you want to go back and put it into context, I encourage you to do so. I'm not trying to rip these out of context, but for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to give you the major points to go to, but go and put it back in context. See if what I am saying is in accord with what the Holy Spirit revealed here when you put this back in context. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11, it says this, and he, this is referring to Jesus, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay? So if Jesus has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, he gave, you'll notice here that this, when you cross-reference this with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what's talked about here in Ephesians 4 is a compressed version of what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12, talking about how God the Holy Spirit gives different individuals within the body of Christ specific gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let me, let me, let me say it this way. Um, do you think God the Holy Spirit gave people the gift of being shepherds and teachers so that they could focus and say, I'm sorry, but I'm a shepherd and teacher of unbelievers. It doesn't make any sense, especially in light of the fact that it says this, that these gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, here's the deal. Who are members of the body of Christ? Answer, only those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and their salvation. If you have not been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins and trusting in Christ and his shed blood on the cross for you, you are not a member of the body of Christ. Therefore, this text makes it clear that Christ has given us apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers in order to equip the saints, that's Christians, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And this is to be expected. 
if Christ's great commission is to be taken seriously, that means that the church has a twin focus, an outward focus and an inward focus. Therefore, no pastor, no shepherd has the right to say, I'm sorry, but the church doesn't exist for you, you Christian. Of course the church also exists for Christians, and the job of the shepherd is to care for God's sheep and to feed them and to equip them and to build them up by preaching and teaching God's word. The scripture is so clear on this. Now, let me give you another example. Acts chapter 20, I'll start at verse 17. This is Paul's farewell address to the churches in Ephesus. Here's what it says. It says, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Now from Miletus he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to them, him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And and now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that um, that in every city uh, the Holy Spirit testifies to me of imprisonment and afflictions, that those are the things that await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Notice a couple of things important here. Paul makes it clear that he did not shrink back from doing his duty and that he was innocent of all of their blood. Why? Because he taught them the whole counsel of the Word of God. The whole counsel. He didn't shirk shirk back from his responsibility. And his appeal to the overseers, to the pastors and the elders of the churches in Ephesus is to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care. For the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. When I hear Stephen Furtick, Mark Beeson, Perry Noble, and other seeker-driven pastors claiming this church isn't for Christians, this church doesn't exist for you, stop complaining about the fact you're not being fed the word of God, I'm not hearing guys who are caring for the flock of the Holy Spirit, the flock of God, the flock that God 
purchased and obtained with his own blood. I hear him saying to hungry sheep that belong to Christ, stop complaining about your hunger. You're not going to get fed here. Beat it. Scram. You're not welcome here. I got more important things to do than to feed God's sheep. Who do you think you are? Go feed yourself. Is that not the attitude that they've conveyed here? This isn't methodology. This is corrupt theology. Their corrupt theology is what leads to their methodology for them to beat God's sheep and to say to them, this church doesn't exist for you. To which I would say, pastor, it isn't your church. You're a pastor. God has made you a shepherd. Your job is to feed God's sheep. You don't get to say, I'm only going to focus on evangelism. You have to focus on evangelism and feeding God's sheep. You are in grave error, and Christ is going to judge you if you keep this up. That's what needs to be said. That is not how a pastor should behave. That is not what the scriptures teach. They are in error. They are teaching a false theology, and they're teaching other men to do the same. These men are not caring for God's sheep the way God's word commands them to. Let me read a little bit more from the scriptures to kind of make the point. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care care, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Mm -hmm. Twisted, mangling God's word to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, you to uh, to commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So Paul says he gave them the word of God's grace to build them up up. That's how a shepherd builds up the church. That's how a shepherd builds up a saint. That's how a shepherd feeds God's sheep is by feeding them God's word. First Peter chapter five, the apostle Peter, whom Jesus said to him three times, feed my sheep. When Peter was restored after he denied Christ three times, three times Peter said, to Je- uh, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. That same man whom Jesus commanded to feed his sheep says this, so I exhort the elders among you as f- a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I hear Peter exhorting elders in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 5 to do the exact opposite of what Mark Beeson, Stephen Furtick, and Perry Noble are saying. 
And then here's the thing. Stephen Furtick, Mark Beeson, and Perry Noble, they're all pastors to pastors. So they're teaching their false and corrupt theology regarding who the church exists for to other pastors who are then mimicking them. We've got a problem. This is a corrupt theology. The church exists for both, both non-believers and believers. And pastors and shepherds and teachers, their job is to care for God's flock. The evangelist is the one who's to go out and preach the gospel and bring people into the church so that the shepherd can care for them, feed them, and build them up in the faith. It's odd that a pastor would basically usurp his primary function in the office that he holds and beat people over the head for saying, you're not feeding me, pastor. That's your job. You're supposed to be quiet. Jesus says, shut up. So, uh, that's what Furtick said, is it not? Let me read to you another passage from Jude. Starting in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. Notice, fixed point, something you can navigate by. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. The angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwellings, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding only themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead and uprooted. I think it's important to note that the... uh, people that Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, warns the church about are shepherds who feed only themselves. So is your pastor a shepherd who truly cares for and builds up the body of Christ and also has an eye out for the unbelievers, has a twin focus of reaching out and building up within or is he only, only, only focused on the so-called non, the person who's far from God? No pastor, no pastor is given a pass in Scripture to only focus on evangelism. 
The church, the church as a whole, must focus on both the unbeliever and the believer, just like a parent must parent both boys and girls. Nobody gets a pass to just focus on one to the exclusion of the other. And that's why God, the Holy Spirit, has given gifts. This is a corrupt theology. It's a corrupt theology of the church. That's why we're having the problems that we're having. And it needs to be called out for what it is, heresy, because that's exactly what it is. We are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. we got a good sermon review on the other side of this break. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. I need a good sermon. <laughs> it's been a while since we played a Pastor Charmley sermon, and uh, they're just brilliant. Here we go.
good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in Great Britain, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. Now, the text is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Pastor Charmley will read the text prior to his sermon. As you're listening to the sermon, notice, number one, this is a sermon based on an entire biblical text. Pastor Charmley didn't begin with a problem he was trying to solve, a felt need that he was trying to itch, or anything of the sort. He's been preaching through this portion of the Old Testament, and now he's come to it. And you're going to hear some great gospel. This is the chapter where Nathan the prophet confronts David with his sin with Bathsheba, his murder and his adultery. And this is a text that we all need to hear. All right, going to turn off the ukulele chorus. Uh, so, um, without any, sorry, about, I hit the I hit the end button and it kept going. I hate when that happens. Ah, computers are not quite as reliable as just manual switches. Anyway, um, so without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley and his sermon entitled "Pardon for Sin." Our scripture reading this evening is taken from. Second book of Samuel and chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. In chapter 11, we have the shocking account of how King David, walking on the roof of his palace, saw a woman, lusted after her, and decided to take her, even though she was somebody else's wife. And she became pregnant as a result of that encounter. And he, to cover it up, first attempted to make it look as if the child was not his, and then he had her husband killed in battle. He engineered his death in battle and married the woman, and he seemed to get away with murder. But the last words of chapter 11 are, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So we read 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then the Lord said Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And the traveller came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. 
Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too much, if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wife in the sight of this son. You did it secretly, and I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor would he eat food with them. And on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive and spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, walked and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? That the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I, can, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon, and took the royal city. Jerob sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken these water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together, and encamp against the city and take it. Lest I take the city, and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together, and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took the king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold and precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. He brought out the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brickworks. 
So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And David and the people returned to Jerusalem. We trust God's blessing to rest on the reading of his holy, most holy word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter we read, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 7. Thus, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. David is one of the great characters of the Bible. He's one of the, the better known characters in the Bible, the great hero of Israel, the man who as a young teenager vanquished Goliath by faith because he trusted God while the other soldiers of Israel did not. They looked at Goliath, but David looked at God. And yet, that king who began so well, that man who had trusted God, came to a point in his life where he forgot the Lord. Worse, he despised the Lord. And chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is like a great bloodstain upon his character, upon the record of his rule. He did this terrible thing, and the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God is holy. That means that he is separate from sinners. That means he cannot look upon wickedness and approve of it. And yet, we are not holy. You and I, we have done things that displease the Lord. And we have done those things not out of nowhere, but because there is wickedness in our heart. The Lord Jesus said, it is out of the heart of man that proceeds all manner of wickedness. It is what comes out of a man that defiles him, and we see that with David. There was something in him that led to his lusting after another man's wife, that led to him taking and killing and in fact it could very well be said it should be said that in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel David becomes Saul Saul was the king who hated and sought to kill the king who took and did not give and in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel David becomes Saul and he comes very close to being the man the second failure as king, to becoming just what Saul was, a man who lived out his life in rebellion against God. But God, in his great mercy, did not leave him. We are capable of almost infinite self-deception. Henry Ford, the man who invented the production line, or claimed to invent the production line, at least invented it for the motor car, once said, that he did not care who Saul was in his heart. And a minister hearing that said, this only proved that Henry Ford had never looked into his own heart. And we're capable of doing this, never looking at what we have done, never looking at what we are, but looking at other people. It's so easy to look at the murderer on the news, to look at the, the thief, 
to look at the dictator and the tyrant and to pat ourselves on the back and say yes I thank you Lord I am not as other men are but what is in the heart God knows what is in our hearts Jesus Christ knows what is in our hearts for he is God and yet grace God's grace goes after the sinner David ran away from God put God out of his mind and we seek to run from God we seek to hide from God when Adam in the garden offended and he heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day he hid himself and God called out Adam where are you not because God did not know but because God wanted Adam to reveal himself and to confess God's grace seeks the sinner and so we see in this chapter first of all we have a parable then we have a pardon and finally we have the payoff the results parable, pardon and payoff then first we have a parable now Nathan could have come, the prophet Nathan could have come to David and simply denounced him he could have done that he could have come to David and told him it as it is and that would have been just to say look David you're an adulterer and a murderer and a wife stealer and a liar and a cheat and an enemy of God but he doesn't do that instead he comes with this story why does he come with the parable and not with the denunciation the answer is because he's coming in grace and in mercy to reclaim David not to condemn him God is seeking to forgive and not to condemn and God knows what the heart needs God knows what will bring David to his senses and it's his parable this story because David is the king and he's a judge and he is the final court of appeal in Israel you go to the king and he will give you justice except of course that the king had been most unjust with Uriah the Hittite and so Nathan comes with this story he doesn't say it's a parable he speaks in such a way that David will think it's true now it is true but it's true in the sense of being a representation of the truth not in the sense of being literal truth and it's told to him for a very specific purpose and so the story is told about two other people because we are so good at judging other people when we don't have anything in it we're so good at passing condemnation on other people David certainly was here are other people and here is this rich man and this poor man the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished and it grew up together with him with his, with his children get him his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom was like a daughter to him do so you have this picture of this 
kindly loving man, this pet lamb who is his delight and his joy. And here is this man who is poor, but full of love and full of compassion and has this one lamb who is the world to him. So in a few words we have this sympathetic character, this man who you cannot help but love. And then, then we hear about the rich man. Now it was a duty in the ancient world, it still is in some parts of the Middle East, that if a, a traveller comes to you, you have to provide hospitality. And if you don't, then it proves that you are a terrible person. It was one of the demonstrations of how bad Sodom was, that it was Lot, the incomer, who offered hospitality to the angels. And the people of Sodom didn't care. A man who didn't give hospitality to travellers would be looked down on in society. And so this rich man in the story, instead, he doesn't want to lose face. He wants to appear to be generous. And so he takes the poor man's pet lamb, kills it, and serves it up to the traveller. At no cost to himself. And David passes his verdict. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Is he passing the death penalty? Is he saying the man's worthy of the death penalty? He's certainly saying this man deserves to die. This man, why? Because he had no pity, he had no mercy. He was a man who was utterly pitiless. Didn't care about other people. He just took and he robbed and he destroyed, and he had no reason for it. It says in the, Old <coughs> in the Old Testament that a man who has to steal to stay alive, people don't despise him. But here's a man who's rich, had exceedingly many flocks and herds. He didn't need to take somebody else's animal, but he did. Because he had no pity. He was not satisfied with what God had given him. And he didn't see what God had given him as something that he had been given in order to serve others. But it was all about him. He was selfish and pitiless. Surely the man shall die, says David. Surely he shall die, this wicked man, this selfish man, this robber. Surely he shall die. And then, and then Nathan, his friend, remember, answers, probably quietly, in solemn tones, and sorrowful tones, you are the man. You are the man, David. You are the man whom you have just said is worthy of death. You are the man who robs you are that selfish man who views all the world as made for himself, and who does not concern himself with God or with man. You are the man, David. You are the sinner. You are the one who has taken, and who has taken, and who has killed. You are the man. 
And yet if we are left at the end of this of say simply what a wicked man David was, we're right to that point. He was a wicked man. But you are the man. You and I. For if we condemn David, we condemn ourselves. For we all have desired that which is not ours. We have coveted. And the final one of the ten words that God spoke from Mount Sinai were written on stone with the finger of God. You shall not covet that which is your neighbor's. You shall not covet that which belongs to somebody else. You shall not look. Men in particular, this is addressed to, you shall not look at that shiny motor car that went past your door and say, I want one. You shall not covet that which is your neighbor's. You shall not desire to have that which is not yours. You shall not commit adultery. The Lord Jesus Christ says in his Sermon on the Mount that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart, the same, the lust after her is the same as committed adultery with her already in his heart. The wandering eye, that is sin in God's sight. The heart, that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You shall not kill. Whoever hates his neighbour, is angry with his neighbour without a cause. Is guilty of murder. In the eyes of God. You are the man. You are David. We, each of us, have done as David did. The man, the woman who makes himself herself the centre of the universe. Notice, this is some rough preaching of the law, and it's exactly the right way to preach it. He's not just telling the story so we can all look at David. He's, he's telling the story and saying, you and I, me, you, everyone listening, you're the man. You're the sinner. That's the right way to preach the law. How's your self-righteousness holding up with under this preaching? It's not. Mine is being destroyed. Yours is being destroyed. Pastor Charmley's even destroying his own self-righteousness through this kind of preaching. And this is the way the law ought to be preached. Keep going, Pastor Charmley. Keep going. Keep killing us with the law. That's what you're supposed to do with it. Not maim us with it or stun us with it or wound us slightly with it, but kill us with it. Keep. Oh, man, this is great desire apart from God that is sin and you and I we are the sinners we do not look outside of this building it's so easy to do for the Pharisee the Pharisee looks down and says to the sinner do not come near me I am holier than thou in the old prose of the King James Bible Ah, the secret that was hidden by the man who said, Stand apart away from me, 
because I'm holier than thou, was that he himself was full of sin and uncleanness. The Pharisee is like the whited sepulchre. On the outside it's beautiful, whitewashed tomb. On the inside it's full of dead men's bones. You go sometimes to these country churchyards or these cemeteries and you will see a glorious structure, a mausoleum. Marble columns, a great domed roof perhaps. From Norfolk where I come from, one of my favourite places is Blickling Hall. It's a great mansion. And in the ground of the mansion is this gleaming pyramid. But in the pyramid are coffins and dead men's bones. Looks nice on the outside, but inside is death and uncleanness. That is your heart. That is my heart. We are the sinners. We are David. And the verdict that David passed upon himself is just. He's worthy of death. And you and I are worthy of death. We are worthy of everlasting condemnation from the face of God. The complaint is made sometimes, you Christians are always judging other people. Oh, that we might judge ourselves first. If I say... Whether a person is worthy of everlasting damnation, I tell you it is the same judgment that I pass upon myself, that I am worthy of that damnation. We are not sitting here saying we are holier than thou, we are sitting here declaring our sins. We begin with us, and we sang that hymn, And I, poor sinner, cast it all away, lived for the toil or pleasure of each day, as if no Christ had shed his precious blood, as if I owed no homage to my God. And we must sing that hymn, meaning it. Because it's true. We do not sit here passing judgment on others and excusing ourselves. We pass judgment on ourselves the same as we pass for it is not our judgment, but the judgment of God, that those that practice such things are worthy of death. That we who practice such things are worthy of death. The parable exposes our sins. Then comes the word of God in pardon. Sin is exceedingly sinful. Look at the sinfulness of it against the mercy of God. This is what David hears from God. David is told, look at everything I did for you, David. I made you the king. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you everything. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Were you not satisfied, David, with being the king? Were you not satisfied with all the good gifts that God gave? Were you not satisfied with God's mercy? 
Were you not satisfied with the good gifts that God has given you? You are the man. You are David. Were you not satisfied with God's good gifts? That you must try to set yourself up against him? You must try to seize his place? The problem was this. You have despised me, says God. You have lived as if there was no God. You have lived as if you were God. You have despised me. You have despised me. You have looked on me, the most holy one of Israel, and have thought, we will not, I will not have this one to rule over me. I will be king. I will be master. You have despised God. And God in all his goodness and all the good gifts he has given you life and health. But he has given up his own son for you and you have despised him. And you have sought yourself. And you have despised the love of God. But God, in his great mercy, sent forth his son. And offers a pardon to sinners. And now here comes the gospel. When you preach the law and all of its rigor to kill, only then does the gospel make alive. And only then is the gospel comforting. After hearing how you are the man, how you are the sinner, can you now stand emotionless and turn a deaf ear to these comforting words that Christ has died for you? All of a sudden, the gospel makes sense. The gospel comes alive. The gospel makes you alive. It makes you alive in Christ. Because the law has killed you, now Jesus makes you alive through his good news and his shed blood on the cross for you and for me. This is well done. Mr. Wesley asked the question, Depth of mercy, can there be mercy yet reserved for me? And he meant it. And who was Mr. Wesley? Charles Wesley? He was the son of a clergyman. He was a man who sacrificed worldly wealth. And a relative of his went to him when he was a little boy and said, If you will become my adopted son, you will have all my possessions. And that man was a man of great wealth. And he said, No. I wish to be a clergyman. I wish to serve God. He went to Georgia as a missionary. He suffered great hardship and yet he writes to him, Depth of mercy can there be mercy yet reserved for me. He saw his own heart, you see. And he was full of sin. As you and I are full of sin. If a man who made such sacrifices for God should have been constrained to cry out, God have mercy upon me, how much more should we so cry out? But David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I hear God's judgment and I confess I have sinned against the Lord. 
Now it's easy to pass over the words and think, well, so, so little I have sinned against the Lord. But you see, there's so much packed up in that. Because there's no excuses. He doesn't say, well, you know, she should have been more careful where she took her bath in the afternoon. She should have been more careful where she was. It was her fault. No, it was my fault. It was my fault. Wasn't her. It was my fault. Doesn't say she should have refused when I sent for her. No. I have sinned against the Lord. I have done it. I have done this thing. Against you. You only have I sinned. And done this great evil in your sight. Psalm 51 was written by David at this time. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, not saying that there's anything particularly wrong or wicked about his conception. He's saying, he's always been a sinner. I've always been a sinner, he says. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. He hasn't even shown truth in the outward parts, trying to cover up his own sin. How much more in the inward parts is there sin? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. But more than that, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. I, who have received mercy, will tell others of that mercy. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice. Or else I would give it, you don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. He's saying it doesn't matter if I make a formal sacrifice. If I were just to take an animal and kill it, but were not to repent of my sins, it would be nothing. But now I repent. Do good. In your good pleasure to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. They shall offer bulls on your altar. There is a sacrifice, you see. This is a figure of speech in which he says, you do not desire sacrifice. He means that not only sacrifice, but faith and repentance. But there is a sacrifice. Sacrifice offered by God. God had built a temple. God had given orders for sacrifice. 
and God had given the sacrifice, and there is a sacrifice for you and for me. Not of bulls or goats, but all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace nor wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. That is the sacrifice we have, the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross. We must come to the foot of the cross of Jesus. And we come with our sins. We come confessing against you, you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. And we behold him there. We behold there the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your sin and my sin. We look to him and in him is salvation. We hear the words of grace. Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. We hear the words of the penitent thief. Truly, truly I say to you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. We hear the words of love, we gaze upon the blood. And we see that God has given an offering and we hear the words of God. The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. The Lord in the day of his anger did lay your sins on the Lamb, and he bore them away. The Lord has put away your sins, and has laid them upon his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ has willingly taken those sins, that he might be our peace that he might be the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. There is pardon and peace in the Lord Jesus. Look unto me, he says, and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none other. Look unto me, bearing your sins, look unto me, putting them away, look unto me, taking them away. You are David. You are the man. Now there is pardon for David, there is pardon for you. Do not think to say, God does not know what I have done. God knows everything you have done. And Christ went to the cross knowing it. And Christ offers you pardon knowing it. He knows and he died for you knowing that. Do not say, my sins are too great, for there is no, nothing, there are no sins too great for the blood of Christ to wash away, if you will only come unto him. Trust in him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. No ifs, no buts. There is pardon in him. Pardon in the Lord Jesus the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. For the cross of Christ declares it. The cross is our pardon, the cross is our peace. So very quickly we come to the payoff. There are consequences to sin. David's sin, even confessed, even taken away, left consequences but not punishment 
David was not punished for his sin. He was chastised and disciplined. What's the difference? The difference is this. Punishment is about justice. So punishment is when the executioner takes the criminal, takes the murderer and kills him. And judgment is done, justice is done. But chastisement is when the loving father takes his erring child and says to him, what you have done is wrong. What you have done deserves discipline. And the, the, the father is not the judge. The judge does not care necessarily one way or the other for the criminal. He's not, suppo- he's not supposed to do that. The judge is to administer justice impartially. He looks at the criminal and says, this is what the law lays down. And that's what's going to happen to you. Take him away, lock him up for the required number of months or years. That's punishment. But the father, he looks at his child's disobedient and wicked child and he says, Son, I am disappointed in you. Son, you have not behaved as you ought. And I am going, it may be a little child who is to be disciplined with a rod. You will be spanked and you will learn. An older child, your pocket money will be cut off for a month and you will not be allowed to go out and play with your friends. But why does the father do it? The father does it because he loves the child and and wants the child to reform. Chastisement aims at restoration. What the father wants is at the end of the month to say to his son, your pocket money's back and you can go and play with your friends again because you have shown that you're sorry and you learn from your disobedience. And God wants us to learn from our sins. David did not forget his sin. He learned from it. And there are these chastisements laid upon him for that end. Discipline. But what was David's response to the discipline? First of all, he hears his son is going to die. The son is taken ill and he's mourning and he's fasting and his servants are quite concerned. And when the child dies, they think, will the king commit suicide over it? Will he hurt himself over it? Will it turn his mind? But instead, David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he showed that he was no longer rebelling against God, but accepting what God had said. And he says of his son, that son who had he lived would have been a badge of shame, an illegitimate child in a society where that was looked down on much more than it is today. I mean, the concept of an illegitimate child is really lost today, but many of you here will remember how things were many years ago when it was regarded as a terrible thing for a child to be illegitimate. A child would have been branded as a product of adultery. But David says, I shall go to him. 
He is safe in the arms of Jesus. He is safe with God. The judge of all the earth shall do right. We know of children who have died. And we sorrow. And we mourn. A friend of mine in London recently lost his little daughter. He's a minister. And it It was very difficult for him. But he has resigned her to God. And he knows that she's safe with Jesus. We know a dead child is safe with God. And so David says, I accept what God has done. I accept the discipline. And we see this repentance. This repentance. And there's another result. A blessed result. Solomon. The name Solomon means peace. And David called his son Solomon because he had peace with God. He said, I have peace with God and so I shall call this child Solomon. You notice that God doesn't say that he's to divorce Bathsheba. He doesn't say, you committed adultery with this woman so put her away. Instead, he blesses the child. He blesses the marriage, even though the marriage was conceived in wickedness. He recognises it. It's part of the pardon of sin. That that which which would have been a great curse to David, unrepented. Impenitent David would have been cursed by it. Repentant David, penitent David is blessed by this marriage. For the one who comes forth from this marriage is Solomon, who is to be his successor, who is to be a blessing, a great king, and most of all, from whom Jesus Christ is to be descended. There's a blessing that comes because of repentance, and finally the blessing of the victory of his enemies. That could never have come to sinful David. To impenitent David, he would have been defeated, he would have lost God grants him the victory because he has been restored. God works all things together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purposes. But nothing, nothing works to good for those who hate him and who oppose themselves to his purposes. So we see David's sin. You are David. I am David. We are guilty God in his great love provides pardon for sin in the Lord Jesus. And the payoff of that pardon is peace with God. Peace with God. And all things made to work together for good. Our chastisements and our blessings. In fact our chastisements are blessings because they draw us closer to God. All things for God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, may we confess that I have sinned against the Lord and I am worthy of everlasting punishment. Oh, may we come for the pardon that God has in the Lord Jesus and receive in him the blessings of the cross, peace with God forevermore. Amen. Amen. Wow. Wow.
where all of these wretched sermons are, how does Jude describe them? Waterless clouds without rain from shepherds who feed only themselves. Here God has given such a gift to the people of Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent, a shepherd who shepherds God's flock, feeds them God's word, and focuses their eyes on their great God and Savior Jesus Christ who bought them with their blood and comforts them with the assurance that their sins are pardoned and put away because of what Christ has done. I loved how he even pulled the gospel out of the remaining details of the story. Nothing fell to the table. I mean, it fell to the floor. All of it was there on the table to be feasted upon. Amen and amen. That's what a Christ-centered, law, gospel, correctly done sermon sounds like. Go find a pastor that preaches like that, because that's what you need That's what I need, because I am a sinner. You need it too, because you're a sinner as well. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your gifts and financial contributions to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see the two friendly yellow buttons. Click one of them and support this important radio outreach so we can pay our bills and keep doing what we're doing. And thank you for your support. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.